You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello, and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and on today's episode, I'll be talking to Benedict Evans, independent analyst and previously partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Benedict joins us to discuss the state of tech in 2022, covering everything from crypto to privacy to the metaverse and beyond. And stick around to the end for our next big opportunity feature, where we highlight a vital consumer need or challenge that's yet to be solved. But first, we kick off with the innovation of the week, where we showcase the one big new innovation you need to know about right now. On episode 93, my guest Charles Arthur talked about how extracting carbon dioxide from the atmosphere was the most pressing imperative for tech innovators right now. On this week's Innovation of the Week, we take a look at a new project that could provide an answer. Mechanical trees. Here to explain more is Marta Indecker, Stylus's consumer attitudes and technology researcher. So Marta, what are these mechanical trees and how do they work? So these prototype trees are actually retractable columns reaching 10 meter height when fully extended. Each tree contains 150 horizontal discs coated with chemicals that absorb carbon dioxide from the ambient air, a process also known as direct air capture. A cluster of 12 trees is reportedly capable of removing one ton of CO2 per day at a cost of less than $100 per ton. So when will we see these first in action? So the researchers at Arizona State University, where the project has been developed, say the first mechanical tree forest will start operating on campus in April. They hope to make carbon-absorbing trees widely available in the future, aiming to have no less than one billion in operation worldwide within two decades. So this could really make a difference then? Yes, the technology is hoped to help governments and industry to meet their urgent net-zero targets. But besides removing large quantities of CO2 from the atmosphere, there is still the question of how to dispose of it safely. Possible options could include storing the collected carbon in geological formations, which we've seen in Iceland, or producing carbonated drinks or fuel. These are all developments that will continue to track at Stylus. Sometimes the center of gravity in tech is very clear. But as we enter 2022, there are lots of areas where trillion-dollar questions are wide open. So says Benedict Evans, who's an independent analyst and previously partner at Andreessen Horowitz, with over 170,000 subscribers to his weekly newsletter which explores what's next in tech. I spoke to him to find out more. We talk about tech is having a macro or is in a macro moment. Maybe you could sort of just explain what you mean by that. And I, I sort of particularly interested on your thoughts about the longer term impacts of the pandemic, for example, on, on this sort of macro moment. Firstly, you know, there's a sort of a COVID acceleration and a kind of COVID rotation, and that applies to narrowly to some very particular companies like sort of Peloton and Zoom and, and, and so on, but also kind of much more generally that having everybody locked up for, you know, 18 months and you in whatever manifestation that took, sort of accelerated use of digital, but also kind of our consciousness or sort of awareness of how, how much our, our use of digital had become. I think secondly, you know, the, so we'd have, we've sort of had a decade of low interest rates or zero interest rates and of capital hunting returns combined with a sort of realisation that 
do when an internet business works, that's now a hundred billion dollar company, not a hundred million dollar company. And so the scope for returns in tech combined with low interest rates, combined with a bunch of other things and meant there's been a sort of a flood of capital going into technology startups. And so you've had this sort of tidal wave of money then accelerated by the pandemic. And now we kind of come out of that. They bunch of tech, big technology companies that the stock's down 50% and interest rates are going up, inflation is going up, investment in China is shifting. And so there's a bunch of kind of macro things in which that, that cycle shifts and valuation is reset and expectations move. How do you think that that filters down to the, the everyday consumer or does it in terms of how we engage with technology? Oh, well, there's a sort of a general point that there are some particular companies or particular sectors where the potential for, you know, long-term returns has resulted in people kind of pumping money in, in the short term, like most obviously grocery delivery. You know, the sort of the, the joking description of this is basically sort of edge capital subsidizing Manhattan as a service. And which is sort of sometimes true, but also sort of slightly unfair in that one can certainly imagine a bunch of areas or a bunch of kinds of density in city where having grocery delivered to you might be economical, you know, just as restaurant delivery has been perfectly economical in some parts of cities for the last 50 years and 150 years, you know, there's no reason in principle why having a 15 items delivered to you on the back of a bike shouldn't be any more or less economical than having a pizza delivered to you on the back of a bike. It just kind of depends. And so there's, but there's a huge amount of money that's sort of flooded into that space in the last, I suppose, two or three years, probably more money and more competitors in more areas that can be supported. And so some of that will go away. On the other side of this, that's not really going to affect how you use Amazon or how you use TikTok. So it kind of depends. I, I was interested in, in what you say in terms of further meeting gravity. I, I, I like that phrase. And I think it's a key problem for brands too. this idea of embracing shiny new technologies, but overlooking the way that their customers actually interact with them. In reality, I wonder whether you could just expand a little bit on this idea of further meeting gravity in terms of what it means for, for crypto and blockchain and so on. Every now and then there's a technology that has a deep strand of ideology behind it. And that was true for open source. It was true for the internet. And, you know, there's a bunch of acronyms and chips and software, but there's also a belief that you're going to change the world, that you're going to change how software works, you're going to change how everybody, you know, lives their lives. And, you know, generally about half of that happens. And we all sort of understand that the internet turned out to be quite a big deal. But, you know, it's also sort of worth thinking that if we go back to the late 1990s, open source was this sort of religious movement within the software industry. And buying software was evil, writing software for money was evil, closed source software was evil, Microsoft was evil. And open source was going, and Linux were going to kind of destroy Microsoft and Adobe and AutoCAD and Autodesk and all these sort of proprietary software was, it was all going to go away. And no one would ever buy Windows and no one would ever buy software. It was a sort of religious movement. And about half of that happened. You know, Microsoft owns GitHub and the iPhone is full of open source software. And yet the other half didn't happen because the iPhone is still closed. And yet the iPhone has millions of apps and billions of downloads. So in what sense exactly is it closed? So that's sort of the question that you have this religious belief. How will that translate into product and market dynamics and purchasing decisions? How much of that belief in, so to speak, the morality of different organization models for software um, projects translate into better products? 
as opposed to consumers choosing those products because of that religion. And historically, there's always been this sort of delusion that sometimes this, this, this new kind of theoretical model produces actually an objectively better product. Generally, consumers don't actually care about the moral view of whether it's morally superior to do it like this. They care about whether the product works. And so that's sort of the gap um, between the morality of software and the kind of the, the kind of the mechanics of actually using the thing. I guess that segues a little bit into what you discuss about privacy. There's this interesting problem about the trade-off between privacy and personalization, and you talk about it in particular in terms of the advertising industry. How do they reconcile? What are those challenges? And where do you think brands should be putting their energy in terms of building trust around concepts of, of consumer privacy while still delivering what we may call a personalized service, however we may define that. So I think the challenge is that we have this sort of great wave of feeling around privacy. We don't have a sort of a settled sense of what we think would and would not be private. As an advertiser, by and large, you don't actually want to know, you know, whether someone's circumcised in the color of their underwear. You know, you just want to show nappy ads to people who are babies and not show them to people who don't and have some idea of which ads people liked. And so in principle, you should be able to have advertising that has that sort of relevance and some of that, that sort of measurement, which doesn't feel like it's invading anyone's privacy. And yet the kind of the mechanics of the way cookies have been built up over the last 25 years means that you kind of are. And so if cookies go away and we've got all these different projects to build something that is, you know, does have relevance and measurement, but also is, is private. But the problem is we don't actually agree on what private would be. So you have this kind of interesting narrative from within the industry that somehow these kinds of things are called tracking and they're bad. And these kinds of things are not called tracking and they're not bad. And then you show that definition to anyone who doesn't actually work in ad tech and they don't agree that there's any difference at all. But I sort of you know, posed this question on Twitter and I have 350,000 Twitter followers. So I sort of asked the question, if the New York Times records everything that you read all week and then shows you an ad based on what you've been reading, is that tracking? And if you talk to people in the ad tech lobby world, they'll say, no, that's not tracking. But if you talk to like, any actual normal person, they'll say, but yeah, they, they, they tracked me. The same thing if you look at what Apple does, you know, show what Apple's description of, we don't track you, we just do all of these things and show that to any normal person outside tech. And they'd say, but that's tracking. That sounds like tracking to me. One can say, look, the cookie goes away. And one can say that the business objective doesn't require us actually to know who you are. It just requires some very general bits of information that shouldn't be a problem. But then we try and actually build something. We have no idea what that would look like. Trying actually to do it involves, on the one hand, sort of herding cats around the world. And on the other hand, giving Apple and Google an enormous amount of control over, or even more control over how the ad business works. And so you mentioned a sort of conflict in here. There's a sort of more primal conflict. There's a conflict between privacy and competition. And, you know, do we let Apple and Google decide how online advertising works? Well, they could probably build something that's private and targeted, but there'd be no competition. So which is it? How do we build? How do we do that? We don't know what we mean by privacy. Since we don't really have any sense of what that actually means, it's pretty difficult to build something that's private. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, uh, I I read your your bit on regulation as well, which I don't want to get into because I think that's a can of worms that we probably won't have time to unpick in this podcast. But it, it does seem like people aren't looking at the details. It's probably the nicest way of putting I it. Think I think there's a sort of a more general point here, which is that, you know, these are important questions. What is your privacy? What does your personal data look like online? And you know, the technology industry will be regulated just as food or aircraft or medicine or railways regulated 
or banking is regulated. But the problem is when you say we're going to regulate cars, if you actually think about that for a minute, or indeed regulate banks, that's kind of actually not one thing. We regulate airbags and we also have laws about teenage boys getting drunk and driving too fast. And we have opinions about parking and congestion zones and light rail and cycle lanes. But you can't go to General Motors and say you have to build cycle lanes in South London. Like that's kind of the different problem. You also can't really tell them to stop teenage boys getting drunk and driving too fast either. That's actually not a mechanical engineering problem. And we also understand this about cars, but the internet has become enormous so quickly that we kind of didn't grow up with it and don't have like an innate and sort of settled understanding of what this is and how it works. I'd like to move on to the great buzzword of the moment, which is obviously the metaverse. It does seem to be a bit of a gap at the moment between this kind of slightly wild vision of what the metaverse is going to be. And in my opinion, the kind of more interesting, we might call it metaverse light reality that is actually already existing on sort of gaming platforms like Fortnite, for example. And also quite interestingly in the, the fashion world, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in, in fashion in terms of immersive sort of virtual uh, environments. I guess the question I'd like to put to you is, is the metaverse ultimately going to be a version of this kind of me as an avatar sort of gaming behavior that's already second nature to, to younger people? You know, I think if you've talked to someone who's been on Roblox or Fortnite for years, the idea of the metaverse is like, well, yeah, we've been kind of doing that already. Is that going to be it? Or is there potentially something bigger that that will sort of bring in VR, AR, all this other crazy stuff that people keep talking about. What is the metaverse? The metaverse is that we all use VR and AR all the time and that there are a whole bunch of new services in those that are more spatial, more immersive, that are more about pop culture and experience. So metaverse does not mean like I played a game. It's a more useful analogy would be to say, well, let's talk about mobile internet instead of desktop internet. And so made no Roblox isn't the fucking metaverse. If we were all wearing AR glasses all the time, the things that we would be doing in that might be metaverse or might not. But the, the challenge here is it's like, you know, this is, this is not so much a technology or really even a set of ideas as a mood board. You know, it's imagine we're in the early nineties and we say, look, this computer things might actually, maybe quite a lot of people are going to have this. It's not just going to be like offices and, and, and geeks. Maybe like, maybe, maybe like a lot of people might have a computer. What would that mean? And then you'd get a whiteboard and you'd write kind of fiber optics. That was a really exciting idea in the late early nineties and CD-ROMs and multimedia and convergence and interactivity and graphical user interfaces and color. That was a big thing. And indeed virtual reality was a big thing then and games and maybe interactive movies. That was a cool, that was a hot topic in the early nineties. And so you'd write all of this stuff on a whiteboard and you'd draw a box around it and you'd call it information superhighway. And then you say, well, who's going to build this? Well, obviously sort of Bertelsmann and the New York Times company and Viacom and Disney and AT&T, they're all going to have a coalition and they're going to be the, those, these companies and maybe Siemens and Alcatel, they'll all get together and they'll build information superhighway. And that's sort of what it's like to talk about metaverse now. Like you get a whiteboard and you write 10 or 20 things that we might all be doing in 10, 15 years time. And you draw a box around it and you call it metaverse. But like, that's not a thing. There's not like a company or product that you can buy and you can't say, well, you would do it. We're doing that now. It's like, I don't know. It's like putting a CD-ROM in your Mac in 1992 and said, look, I'm using the information superhighway. Well, that doesn't, that's not a statement that has any meaning. 
And in the same way, like to say we're investing in the metaverse or, you know, we're going to launch a product on the metaverse, this is a meaningless statement. What would you say to Kevin Disney just um, hired a metaverse, head of metaverse or something? What do you say to Disney in that respect? It's great marketing or it's great for you to market yourself to other marketers. It's a nice way to spend some experimental budget. But, you know, this is a very vague term that somehow caught fire for a bunch of completely unconnected things we might all be doing in five or ten years' time. Now, the next big opportunity. This is where we look at consumer needs and gaps in the market that still need to be addressed by brands, businesses and startups. On today's episode, we're taking a slightly different approach with a quick look at the latest big piece of reporting from Stylus, which we published this week, The Consumer of 2040. This series of reports explores how today's shifts will shape global lifestyles long term. The reports cover sustainability, luxury, wellness, inclusivity and convenience culture. But right now I'm going to take a look at an opportunity from the technology report, capturing the scent of the metaverse. Sorry, Ben. What does that mean? Well, back in June last year, London-based fragrance house Rook Perfumes partnered with British NFT platform Lily and Piper to create the scent of the metaverse, a limited edition unisex scent that aimed to replicate the digital world of art. Scent of the metaverse was created in conjunction with the crypto community over four months. Buyers purchased NFT tickets, of which only 100 were available, for $781 worth of Ethereum, and received an exclusive code which authorised access to a communication channel with Rock Perfumes, where they could input into the aromatic profile of the fragrance. Participants had first access to the physical release of the perfume, as well as an NFT of the label artwork and co-creation rights to the final product. Now, as we explore in the Consumer of 2040, this is an example of a DAO, or Decentralized Autonomous Organization, member-owned communities without centralized leadership, where rules, decisions, and contracts are transparently recorded on the blockchain. DAOs will move from a niche activity to a mainstream concern over the next few years, and they grant consumers direct input into the creative direction and share of the profits of decentralized brands in a multitude of industries. Decentralized communities will coalesce around shared creative interests such as fashion, film, visual arts, and even, as we've seen, fragrance. If you're interested in finding out more about DAOs and you're in Austin for South by Southwest next week, then come along to the presentation I'm giving about headless brands and DAOs on Sunday the 13th at 11.30am in the Marriott. And speaking of South by Southwest, watch out for our South by podcast special featuring on-the-ground reporting and interviews from the event going live in the next few weeks. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it and I love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at We Are Stylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.